You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. As we consider the recent unemployment statistics, our record levels of youth unemployment at over 63%, uh, the problems bedeviling our education system in the public sector, which is still trying to get back to full-time teaching, it could be comfortable to simply dismiss talking about things like artificial intelligence, cloud-scale computing and machine learning as technology tools that really live outside our current reality. But we are seeing signs that this technology is offering hope, even in the dusty streets of our townships. Conversational AI solutions are proving a crucial tool to have in your toolbox if uh, your firm cares about customer experience. And the interest and the investment in the space is a sign of just how important these have become in the current pandemic and will likely be in a post-COVID-19 world. More importantly, these tools and the amount of research into translation models catering to low-resourced African languages is giving new promise just to how these technologies can help include more people in the digital economy. Recently, Africa scored a big win uh, with grassroots natural language processing research uh, community Masakane bagging the Wikimedia Foundation Research Award for its work, which has led to the launch of its machine translation service, which can translate Yoruba, Lingala, Tiluba, Igbo, Shona and Setswana. And uh, Team Cognition, a South African team of grade 10, 11 and 12 students from different Kuro schools around the country, won second place at the 2021 Imagine Cup Junior Virtual AI Hackathon recently. So uh, there is hope, but there's also a dark side. We've got deep fakes, which have been prominent in the news in the last two years, as uh, the tools and platforms that allow for such content to be produced are widely available and easy to use by both skilled and casual users. And while some deep fakes can be used to create fun viral videos or new synthetic applications such as digital avatars that have multiple applications, they can also be used to manipulate or generate visual and audio content with the potential to deceive with all of the subsequent negative impacts for people, for businesses and for wider society. I think all of this though is just further evidence of a maturing AI market all over the world but also here in South Africa. Well to talk about this I'm joined now by Johan Stein, a smart automation and artificial intelligence thought leader, management consultant as well. He's chair of the special interest group on AI and robotics within the Institute of Information Technology Professionals of South Africa and Dr. Nick Bradshaw, who's co-founder of AI Media Africa. They're the curators of the AI Expo Africa as well as Africa's first AI and data science magazine, Synapse, and he's the host of the streaming channel AI TV. So great to have you on the show with us, Dr. Bradshaw. Uh, just tell us a little bit more about how you came to be involved in the field of artificial intelligence. Thanks, Michael, and great, great to be on the show. Um, I, I guess my journey uh, is an accidental journey. I, I've been in the tech space for well, 20, 20 odd years now, giving away my age. But um, I've always had a fascination around um, these technologies and, and this rapidly expanding uh, tech landscape. And after I had worked in uh, my, my own business, uh, which was a Microsoft consulting business, I actually um, started to do some research around, around the African landscape. I'm a, a Brit that's now living in uh, South Africa. And I found that um, uh, there really wasn't a, a business community having a conversation around these technologies. There's some amazing technical research and developer communities. And so essentially I, I wanted to fill that gap and, and create um, mm. a, a business community to have the very conversations that you've uh, alluded to. So very much an accidental journey into this, but it led by my own uh, interest in the, in the topic. Johan, that's a conversation that we've had in the past, is the community around AI 
uh, and it still looks quite fragmented in, in South Africa. Uh, how did you come to meet uh, Dr. Bradshaw? Because uh, this certainly speaks to your passion of trying to unite the AI community to talk about the business applications, the ethics, the society-wide issues that AI presents. Mm. Michael, I've been reading the, the Synapse uh, magazine for some time and following uh, Dr. Nick's uh, work and also attended the conference and then luckily I had the opportunity to speak at the conference last year and, and Nick and I speak quite a bit because you know he's created such an amazing community and, and to your point Michael it's still very fragmented but I think it's really from from his magazine and from the conferences that I first got in touch with Nick. Now Nick I mean when we look at AI to my introduction I think many people might think that AI is something that's uh, happening and being developed in Europe America, Asia doesn't really have a place in Africa considering uh, the, the problems that we tend to face on a daily basis, ESCOM load shedding, our education challenges, but there is some great work that's being done in the AI field in Africa. What really struck you when you said about developing this business community around AI? What are the characteristics of the AI community here in Africa? Well, as you alluded to, Michael, in, in your introduction, uh, there is actually a very vibrant community and, and, and groups of people working on all sorts of projects, whether that's the ones that you mentioned earlier about um, developing uh, uh, local African language models so that these technologies can work in our own languages, right through to people who are doing grassroots education. Uh, if you look at uh, an organization called Data Science Nigeria in West Africa, pioneering um, grassroots education around data science and AI for, for young people, young engineers, students, and our ambition is to train a million people in, in 10 years. And I think when I started this journey um, it, at, towards the end of 2017, what I was actually seeing on the ground here in our region didn't tally with what the global north, if I can use that phrase, mm. was sort of reporting that the, the African map was blank, uh, as, it, mm. as it often is. Mm. But actually what I was seeing on the ground was this very vibrant community um, in, in many, many of the countries on the African continent. And uh, that was the complete opposite of what I was hearing in the, in the mainstream media, which is why we created the event, why we created the magazine, so that we could showcase more of this information, more of this research, more of the, the entrepreneurs and businesses coming to the fore, which actually are being sort of below the radar. Um, they're often not reported on. So that was one of our prime, prime goals in, uh, in, in building this community and, and communicating that to the wider audience. As the old saying goes, here be dragons on the map, but in Africa it's actually, when you look at it, here be developers. So if you scratch the surface, you actually are seeing a lot of work being done on the ground. And Johan, you wrote Economy Business Day recently about the, the applications, even in the dusty township streets uh, of, of South Africa's most impoverished communities. Just share your experience uh, from a recent conversation that you had at uh, a red Hill School event that led to this eureka moment? Michael, it was a few months ago. It was a, a global event and about eight cities in the world on the same day. It was called Girls in AI and uh, we had a number of teenage girls from Red Hill School and girls through the Tomorrow Trust from rural areas who all came together at Red Hill and we, we had a, a keynote by Emily Mbele who's at RMB and who really kind of embodied this journey from poor rural um, upbringing to, to reaching kind of the top in an investment bank. We broke up in groups, taught them machine learning uh, fundamentals and um, design thinking. And um, two of the girls at my table, um, and I was the moderator of my little group, were from a rural area. And I was surprised at how 
informed they were about this technology. I mean, I thought I'm going to, I work in the field, I'm going to impress them. I couldn't. They know the terms. They know what it's about. We then had to create a, a conceptual um, application to, and they chose sexual health, which was interesting to hear how they spoke about this and the realities they are living with. So it was really, as you said, an eureka moment, because I thought, you know, these girls w might end up never finding work or might end up working in, in a, in a mm -hmm. shopping center and, and all work is honorable. But I think we've got so much talent and potential in our country for our country's problems. And it's, it's, it's a really a thing that's keeping me up at night is how can we work together to make sure that we tap the talent that we have um, with children that might not have any other future, especially in the business world. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it speaks to that record youth unemployment number that we saw. But there is great work being done. I think of the likes of We Think Code uh, and Harambi and others who have gamified a system to uh, identify and earmark talent, fast track it through programs where they can churn out through boot camps. Code is uh, almost in a six month or, or a year program and they get snapped up by uh, the likes of Amazon and, and Google who are setting up HQs in, in Cape Town. So there is that good news story. But I think there, there is also, uh, and Dr. Bradshaw, your thoughts on this, th there's a lot of fear around large-scale job displacements that this technology could potentially cause. How do you think about this and this inherent tension? It does seem to be rather binary when we think about AI in a country with our record levels of youth unemployment. Yeah, I mean, tension is a good word there, Michael. I, I mean, I think if, uh, there was a presentation that I'd given a, a few times where there was some analysis of the, the jobs industry uh, and employment um, um, pathways in, in America over 150 years. And when you look at, say, 150 years ago in North America, most people were in farming and plowing the land and uh, you know, walking behind a horse, essentially. And then essentially, as technology um, uh, progressed and these technologies found their way into these other, uh, other traditional industries, they were revolutionized. There was a reduction in the numbers of people employed, but some of those changes resulted in retraining, uh, learning how to use these technologies, and then uh, you know, moving higher up the skills chain. So mm. that the net change in employment over that period has broadly not changed. It's just that people have moved into different jobs within that industry higher level or um, higher value add within that industry. So they're moving away from doing repetitive, sort of low-grade tasks, allowing a bot or uh, a software program to do that for you. And then this concept of actually working with a bot, working with a cobot, working with a helper that's essentially doing the routine work, which is where you can then add value and maybe you're spending more time talking to a customer, for example, rather than handling a complaint mm. or mm. that can be initially dealt with by the technology and then handed back to the human. And people need to be taught how to work with a bot. That in itself is a subject which, you know, Johan mentioned design thinking, creative thinking. These new areas, these new topics, these new job categories are going to emerge. So while there will be displacement, there will be new job creation along the way. So, at the, you know, it's exciting and challenging at the same time so tension is a very good word in, in, that, yeah. in that respect yeah and I liken it to I mean, us using calculators in, uh, in in finance you know our good old financial trustee financial calculator is the first uh, technological augmentation 
to help us doing our job. Uh, it's just the technology that is changing. It hasn't displaced the role of the financial analyst or, or the financial journalist over time, but it has allowed you to maybe go a little bit deeper, spend a bit more time asking different questions, more searching questions uh, of, of companies and going through their, their balance sheets and financials. So there is a place for that. There is also, I think, Johan, obviously then for policymakers, an important um, understanding here to ensure that the curriculum keeps pace and adapts to these changing needs and requirements and, and how we then feed that into our education system. Absolutely, Michael. Look, I think we the, the challenge is we are preparing young people for jobs that we can't even imagine to some extent. Um, I would not like to think that, you know, you spend, say, four years at, at varsity becoming a chartered accountant or something else, maybe that's not a great example, but just for your job to be displaced or, or to be irrelevant. Um, but it starts at a young age. You know, um, I think the way we, we train our children from a problem-solving point of view is very important. Um, I think to a large extent we, we teach our children across the world to memorize certain facts and, and you know, obviously math helps us with thinking and all that. But to really be creative and think out of the box and to be ready for jobs that don't exist is a conundrum for us because how do we prepare our youngsters for, for, for jobs we can't even imagine? Firstly, it should start at government level, but I think everyone, and I always stress this when I speak on this topic, we all have a responsibility, whether it's through some sort of influence or whether it's just through the children in our own homes, that we prepare them for a world that we can't even imagine yet. And it's a lot of people disagree with me when I speak about this, and, and I'm definitely an, an optimist and not a pessimist, but I think mm. the world is changing so quickly through this kind of technology that a lot of people will be caught sleeping at the wheel, I yeah. think, so to speak. Very interestingly, a group of 50 investors that uh, are in charge of more than $4.5 trillion worth of investment are calling on companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google, the big tech giants, to use facial recognition in an ethical and responsible manner. And I think this is a topic that is getting more and more attention as we've seen the rise of deep fakes, fake news in this post-truth world. If you can manipulate video, uh, you can manipulate audio, I mean, what, what is there left to believe in the virtual world? I mean, how do you think about this? Well, it, it's, a, it's a massive topic uh, and it's a rapidly evolving uh, tech landscape. Um, many, many of the tools that you can use to create these media are, are freely available. Uh, you can download them as an app on your phone and uh, you can swap your face onto your favorite action hero. Uh, so there is at one end of the spectrum uh, a kind of perhaps uh, fun, kind of jokey way of using these um, technologies and having a bit of fun. But uh, as you said, the, at the other end of the spectrum, there, there is the ability to very easily create uh, a situation or, or a media or a film or, or an audio recording that um, you know, is impersonating someone for a, a more nefarious uh, outcome. And I think obviously coupling that with, as you mentioned, facial recognition technologies being used at scale in perhaps may, maybe a, a more surveillance type role, maybe at one end of that from neighborhood security, you might say that is good. Um, but at the other end, you want to make sure that um, you may not be accidentally prosecuting or arresting innocent people. Um, so, you know, it is a, it's a hot topic, um, it's an area where I think where you look at uh, laws and legislation and privacy, you've got this coming together with some very um, contemporary hot topic issues here and, and it's a debate that's very lively and a debate that we're actually having uh, at our event as well.
I, I believe you're going to be having a, a deep fake competition. How is that going to work? You, you sent me a, a great little clip where one of these uh, avatars was um, created and you, it took you five minutes, I believe, to introduce the event. Just remarkable that that kind of technology I is a freely available at our fingertips. Yeah, well, if you look at yourself there, Michael, you're, you're in a studio with a whole bunch of people and lights and equipment and, and uh, you know, to create a film. Um, you know, does take time and, and investment. Whereas now, with uh, some of these technologies, you can, if you can type text into a keyboard, you can choose your avatar, you can choose your background, you can choose your music, and then essentially the, the synthetic agent um, then speaks and it looks essentially lifelike. And that can take you five minutes to create something which would have traditionally taken maybe half a day in a studio to do. So we wanted to shine a light on this topic. We created the, the Deepfake Africa Challenge, well, actually running it on a South African uh, data science challenge platform. It's called Zindi. It was uh, founded by a company in Cape Town. It's now got a following of 26,000 engineers across uh, the African continent. And what we've done is we've set a challenge on that platform to basically say, come up with um, uh, a deep fake, and then we'll, we'll obviously score and assess them. And, uh, and then this will become a topic at our, our show in September. Dr. Bradshaw, how do I know you're not a deep frack uh, talking to you right now? And, and uh, I might not have a job in the future after having a look at that. Uh, and, you're, and I say that in jest. But really, you know, when it comes to the business applications of this technology, how should businesses be thinking about use cases, uh, teasing out potential uh, growth areas and opportunities when the technology is moving so rapidly? Look, I often wonder if we think of law enforcement, uh, Michael, uh, say you're in a court of law and evidence is being presented that you left a certain message or that there's actually a video of you speaking. And But how can we prove that it's actually that kind of a, a person or that it's actually the individual in question? So I think from a law enforcement and a legal point of view, we're in for some interesting times. Look, a lot of businesses that I go to these days, you, you use facial recognition to um, register at reception. And then wherever you go, you use your face to enter certain rooms or are allowed not to enter certain rooms. And they can also track you where you go. Um, so from a security point of view, I think there are so many um, advantages. But from, from other perspectives, I'm really concerned. You know, I often think that, you know, my face is essentially my own data. Now, we know about Poppy, we know about GDPR in, in Europe. But you can't just use my data for anything. But if I walk in the street and you're filming my face and tracking me, I did not give you permission to do that. So I think from a customer service point of view, there are some great applications. Um, not that we go to bank branches much anymore, but if a high value client walks into the branch and it's picked up on facial recognition, you might, for instance, say the bank uh, branch manager should immediately come out and meet that client. So there's all kinds of almost custom experience mm. opportunities. But I mm. think the potential to do bad with this technology, in my opinion, far outweighs the good at this stage. Uh, and that's an important uh, consideration for government at this stage. I want to come back to the business use applications, Dr. Bradshaw. I can imagine uh, walking into a retail store and then scanning my face and being a member of a loyalty program and immediately they can pick up, ah, oh, Mr. Avery, this is your regular purchase history and send uh, a sales assistant to uh, see if they can help me uh, with a particular item. Now, some may find that quite useful. Others may find that that's overstepping a boundary here. How do you advise businesses to think about embracing this from, a, from an end-user perspective? Well, as, as, as both yourself and uh, Johan mentioned there, you know, that there is the potential for good and there is the potential for harm. I think from a business use case, it has to be set in, 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 
in, in a wider change within the business uh, for it to be a success. But a careful consideration has to be given to, as, as Johan mentioned, privacy, um, you know, rights around information that, that are personal to you. Um, I, I think some very good examples where, um, again, another, uh, another homegrown South African innovation called the Moon Shop um, out of Cape Town. Again, it, it's a kind of um, serverless uh, shop environment where you walk in and you take something off the shelf um, and then it, it automatically uh, debits that off your phone. Um, great example, great use case. But again, um, as we've seen with, with some of the um, recent news announcements, um, all of these systems, I think yesterday um, there was a, a key um, internet service provider that went down and that took out everyone's yep. website. So, you know, there are some interesting dynamics in how these technologies work, how they link to privacy, how they link to other systems, particularly in the cloud. So I think any business that's moving forward with these technologies, tread carefully. Uh, make sure you fully understand the use case. And if you deploy these technologies at scale, think about precision, accuracy, bias, how you've trained yep. the algorithm, the, the, the inclusivity of the data set that you've put in there so you don't, you don't come unstuck. Yeah, specifically in South Africa's case, you know, we, we have had cases where there is a potential bias uh, encoded into certain algorithms when it comes to screening and vetting bank customers, for example, and that really can turn uh, around and, and bite you if, it, if it's deployed without uh, fully understanding um, what, what you're deploying into the market. Just as we conclude, we've got about uh, three or four minutes to go. Johan, um, when you look at the overall picture here in South Africa, what do you see still as the key challenges to, uh, to realizing this transformative potential? And back to your column that you wrote in, in Business Day, you really had this eureka moment that you believe it can transform um, even the most impoverished communities. But I, I remain skeptical in a country that struggles to keep the lights on, where we've got this huge problem with our public education sector. What, what would you advise government to be focusing on in order to reap the benefits and the potential of this uh, technology? We, we can't, so to speak, dangle our feet in the water and see what happens. Um, we have to be very serious about this as a collective, as a society. Um, I think it starts with that many business leaders, but many leaders, or if not most, in, in business and government still don't understand this technology, uh, Michael, and how, how rapidly it is busy and is going to change our world. So I think there should be, from a legislation point of view, from almost a top-down point of view, a lot more being done. I mean, we've seen the recommendations of the Presidential Commission on the Fourth Industrial Revolution, but the implication or the application of those uh, recommendations is lagging. Uh, I mean, I don't really see much in the press, mm. um, and I think it's maybe not up to government, but up, up to us. But if I could choose one topic, it would be education. And it would be educating our young people from almost the pre-primary stage already to become ready for where this technology is going to take them, almost irrespective of what career they're going to take. And as you alluded now to the fact that a lot of people don't have water, don't have electricity, don't have connectivity, there are some other fundamental structural issues. That's almost first or second um, industrial revolution issues that we rapidly have to put in place before we tackle this problem, but we don't have time on our side. Yeah, sadly, that, uh, that window of opportunity to, to really take advantage is, is rapidly closing on us. Uh, Dr. Bradshaw, I mean, with developing this AI Expo Africa into the event that it is today, which really has become the, the, the primary meeting ground for those interested in AI, what have you learned so far 
that uh, you think would be useful if you were to advise government, um, and to my earlier point, on, on how to fully extract the benefits and the value that AI presents South Africa? Well, I, I, again, it builds on, on, on Johan's uh, point about education. I think it's a, a tops-down and a bottom-up. So bottom-up education and, and tops-down national strategy. So if you look at some of the other countries in the Africa region, like, uh, for example, Kenya, they published their national AI blockchain strategy. I think it was mid-July uh, uh, 2019. Um, so if, if we can get the tops down to meet the bottoms of education, then uh, you know, we really can um, have, have some impact. I think in terms of my own observations, the biggest observation is there's always something to learn. This is a full-time job for me, and I'm learning something every single day. And when I talk to people in some of the large corporates, both on the buyer and supply side, um, they too are struggling to keep up with it, and they're obviously very close to this technology. So it's rapidly evolving. There's always something to learn. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a real thrill to be involved in this uh, fourth industrial revolution in this region. Absolutely. And, and within that, there is a lot of opportunity uh, as well in any fast-moving sector such as uh, AI. Uh, that was uh, Dr. Nick Bradshaw, who's uh, the, uh, the founder or co-founder, I should say, of uh, Africa's largest AI expo. Uh, who was joined by Johan Stein, a smart automation and AI thought leader, talking about uh, the AI landscape in South Africa, which I think, uh, to maybe uh, some people's surprise, is a lot more developed uh, than uh, first appears when you scratch the surface.